0: This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here.
1: You're listening to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Deanie Petty, why you're never too old, learn and play before hitting the links, and the move to preserve public education. But first, a big announcement a couple of weeks ago. Ontario will ban pro athletes and celebrities of all stripes from appearing in ads for online gambling as of February 28th. 2024. That's five plus months from now. Seems like an eternity away, but the road to the ban itself has been even longer and very challenging. Carl Suban is a proud dad, father of five children, three of whom are NHL players. He's also been a strong and powerful voice behind the campaign ban ads for gambling. Carl joins us now on the feed. I am so happy to have you with us. Hi, Carl.
2: Hello, Anne.
1: It's good to have you on the show. So your first response when the government announced that it was going to uh, ban uh, online gambling ads that feature sports celebrities and other, you know, wigs, what, what was your first response?
2: Well, it reminds me of when my son said, Daddy, I want to be a hockey player. And I handed him a pair of skates. And he was so excited. Then he asked, I need more equipment than this. I can't be a hockey player with only my skates. And I feel the same way about uh, the announcement. Uh, obviously, uh, we're, um, you know, we're, we feel positive about it, but we know that a lot more needs to be done.
1: And what more needs to be done?
2: Well, you know, it's, uh, they, you know, the, the, gam- the gaming industry can still use hockey players uh, if they're using them to spread the message ar- around uh, being responsible when you're gambling. Right. Well, we know that yeah. the young person and uh, will see the, 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 the hockey player, see the superstar, but will not hear the part about being responsible. You know, they're still connected to it, which is not a good thing because we know that young people, they look up to these celebrities. They look up to the hockey superstars. And sometimes it, it, the look is so big, it, it is so wide that they miss hearing uh, the messages that they're, that they're communicating.
1: You know, you've been quoted as saying there is strong evidence supporting the great dangers that gambling poses to our citizens, especially to our young people. What is that evidence?
2: Well, in terms of um, the, some of us, uh, when it comes to decision-making, I know that it's been proven and it's, it's, it's there in the science that the part of the brain that's responsible for decision-making uh, in, 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 you know, in, in a lot of males is not fully developed until they're around 25. And so, and so we know that in, within that age group, we, uh, we have many problem gamblers. And, and as we are aware today, and we know from, um, from research and so on, that, that more and more uh, young people are dabbling and, and getting involved in gambling, which is not a good thing. And then it becomes a problem, and they're too deep into it to get out of it. And then it becomes a problem for all of us. Because it's not just a problem uh, for the gambler, when one becomes addicted, it becomes a problem for all of us.
1: So here's a statistic that just about threw me out of the seat when I was sitting to reading this. From April until June of this year, fourteen billion dollars worth of wagers were placed here in Ontario.
2: Shocking. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, 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 it's about making money. Let's face it. it is about making money. And and as an educator, I'm more about helping people to make it in life. And, and so, you know, and, and, and we just want the government to do uh, for gambling what they have done for tobacco. Mm. You know, is, is all these legislations, will they change, uh, stop, will it stop people from gambling? No, we know that it, it won't stop everyone. But we should, we want to make it more challenging. We want to make it, right now it's so easy for someone uh, to gamble. You know, it's right there on their f- iPhone. It's right there on their tablet. We're just making it too easy, and it's, it's everywhere. You turn on the TV to watch a hockey game or football game, and it's there. And I understand about making money, but, you know, making money sometimes is not as important as, as helping people to make it in life. And when you become a gambler, I don't know too many gambling addicts who are making it in life, and 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 we know the, the seriousness of addiction today in our society. Come on, we don't. Every time you turn on the TV, uh, we are exposed uh, to, to that problem that it, that that so many of us are facing in society today.
1: Can you tell us about the committee, the campaign that you put together with others like, like Bruce Kidd, for instance, Ban Ads for Gambling. And there's a website, BanAdsForGambling.ca. Banads, Why did you put this together? What did you do in the committee? And how did you get your message across?
2: Well, you know, I didn't put the committee together. They reached out to me, uh, knowing that I'm very passionate about my work with young people in helping them to... Uh, to achieve their potential, and that's my lane, you know, because I've I've been working with young people all my life. So, so that's how I saw my role on this committee. We're all passionate about, you know, about um, everyone in society being the best citizen, being the best person they're capable of being, and so we know that gambling is getting in the way of that. So we all feel strongly about it. So. Uh, you know, Bruce and John and the other committee members, we work together to form this group. It continues to grow. We have a website with tons of resources. Um, you know, we are connecting with senators and politicians and all the people who are difference makers in our society to help us uh, uh, to make a difference. And you know what? It's working. We, we see now that the government uh, understands uh, that, uh, that, that they need to do more in terms of stopping these celebrities from participating in these commercials because they're leaders and they, leaders' influence, all right? And young kids want to be like them, and if they see them in these gambling ads, guess what? They're going to say, it must be if it's okay for that superstar hockey player, it's okay for me who wants to be like him because, I want to do everything he's doing.
1: What have you seen when you've witnessed young people, young boys and girls, looking at, worshipping, if you will, because we do worship our hockey heroes, but when they look at your, your sons in the NHL, in particular PK, of course, what do you see, I mean, what do you see transpire between the young and, and the heroes?
2: Well, you know, I remember, first of all, I looked, I look within my family, and I remember all three of my sons, they just loved hockey, and, 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 and they all had players that they loved. You know, Malcolm was in the basement, and he, idolized, he was idolizing this goalie from New York Rangers. He had the equipment on, just doing things that he was doing. I remember P.K. loved Vincent D'Aufus, you know, and, and Jordan just loved hockey, just wanted to be a hockey player and, and to score goals. And, and, and so the sport did a lot for them, but also the players influenced them. And so, and, and so it's like these heroes, these superstar athletes lit that fire in them, lit that fire in them. And so now I think that when you see them in these commercials, I think they're uh, lighting the wrong flame <laughs> <laughs> very well put, you know I mean? yep. yeah yeah right yeah and we don't <laughs> want that to happen nope, absolutely you know and 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 so and and we know young people i mean you know they, they're going through a lot and and so and sometimes you know they have the phone 24 7 on them and it's so easy for them to say let me see what this is about let me see it we've made gambling so normal and so easy and so and, and, and so and hockey players, um, using them in these commercials is, is adding to that, and it's not a good thing. So, so we don't want hockey players, celebrities, not just hockey players, using their success in the way that they are using them. Like, I wouldn't want PK to use the success that he, he, he has achieved in hockey the wrong way. If he's using it to help others to be successful, I'm the happiest dad on planet <laughs> Earth. And, and if, 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 he, if he was in these commercials, and I, I really don't have a lot of say over it, I would not be as happy. I would still love him, but I wouldn't be as happy.
1: So the ban goes into effect on February 28th, 2024. What will things look like after that ban goes into effect? And what are you going to do between now and then to improve and solidify and make that ban a little more inclusive and thorough,
2: in your view? In my view, well, our committee continues to work. You know, uh, our, continue, uh, our committee continues to work with the, the uh, politicians and senators, and, and we continue to, to provide resources and, and share information. For example, in Australia, uh, they have a four-stage strategy to ban ads. So all that information is there, is there on, our, on our website. Well, we know what? We're doing interviews like we're doing today, other members of my committee, just to get the word out, just to keep the, the momentum going, and also to communicate to the politicians that... You know, it's like trying to, you want to be a hockey player, uh, just having a pair of skates is not enough, and we, we appreciate what they have done, but it's, it's, we're still at the starting line, and, and more needs to be done, and, you know, we're going to continue uh, speaking out uh, against uh, what's happening in the industry until we see more changes, and we know it's not going to happen overnight, but we're not, there's no giving up in, in each one of us, and, and you know what, uh, there's more and more Canadians uh, believe in, in, in what we're doing. Uh, whenever I see people, they're no longer asking me about PK, Malcolm, and Jordan, how they're doing. They're saying, Mr. Subban, I love uh, the stance that you're taking on this gambling issue because we know someone that has, uh, that it's affecting them. I've heard, I've heard so many stories about what, uh, about, the power of of addiction, especially in the area of gambling and how it's impacting on someone that they know. And you know what? It's not the 45 or 50-year-old person anymore. Uh, It's the teenager. It's the young adult.
1: Carl, in a perfect world, what would this ban encompass? What should it encompass? I know you've already said it falls short of what you want.
2: Yeah, you know, um, we don't want to see these ads popping up on our phones, um, you know, as frequently as they do. We don't want to have. We make it just way too easy for young people, and especially those who who are um, who are prone uh, uh, to to be addicted to gambling, uh, to uh, to have this easy access to it. We don't want when I sit. I don't want when I sit down to watch the hockey game with my, grand, with my granddaughter or my grandson that, you know, that all we're seeing is these gambling ads, you know, and I have to change a channel, you know what I mean? So it's, 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 we, just, we just need to see less of it. And I think if we can see less of these um, marketing ads, these commercials i think that we'll have less people gambling
1: how about the fact that, that there will still be uh, it'll still be allowed sports heroes to be involved in oh now here are the dangers of gambling that, that sort of
2: influence yeah. That, yeah. that's that's yeah, a little concerning to, yeah yeah we need to ban them all together they, they don't need to be in these ads because people still see them as celebrities they still see them as hockey players you know, if, if, if you have a hockey player or baseball player, a football player in a McDonald's commercial, I don't want to give them any more airtime, though, <laughs> that, that they still see them as a hockey player. They still see them as a football player, baseball player. So let's ban them from these ads. Come on. It makes sense it, because they're there because of their ability to influence. All right. And, and we know what leaders do. They influence and they have followers. All right. And we can't stop young people from following these celebrities or these, or these uh, sports celebrities and so on. But, but let's, not sh- you know, let's not have them in these commercials or promoting gambling because people don't hear the responsible part. All they do is see that hockey play in front of them. doesn't matter what they're dressed, how they're dressed, or, or the commercial they're in. They still see them as hockey players, and, and if they see them... As as eating fast food, they're going to say fast food must be good for me. If they see them in gambling uh, commercials, they're going to say, "Well, it must be good for me too because it's good for them." So we want to ban it all together.
1: So it's still a long and winding road ahead of you, but you are on it, Carl Suban, banadsforgambling.ca. Thank you so much for your time on the feed today.
2: Thank you, Anne, and thank you for having me, and thank you for helping us to make a difference in our community and in our society. Thank you and have a great day.
1: Coming up next on The Feed, Fred Fox, Terry's brother with a preview of this year's fundraiser.
0: Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Across this nation, Canadians are preparing to once again participate in the Terry Fox run. Here's Tina Cortez with Terry's brother, Fred. Fred, thank you so much for joining us on the feed.
3: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
4: And I have to say, it's a real honor for us to have you join us on our show to talk about the legacy of your brother, Terry, and frankly, your entire family.
3: Well, it's great to have the opportunity. Thank you. And, um, you know, Terry would be so amazed and so proud of uh, where his dream, um, I guess, you know, his legacy is all these years later after what he started in 1980 and running the Marathon of Hope and more importantly where cancer research is.
4: Can I ask you a personal question? What What do you remember about Terry as a brother?
3: Yeah, you know, I... Most of my memories of Terry uh, uh, go back to us being kids and growing up together. I'm only a year apart. Uh, I'm the older brother, 14 months older, and so it, it's those family brother memories as kids. Not so much about the marathon of hope, but um, you know, there was a you know the Terry's marathon of hope was amazing, and and it's something that um, has impacted so many in, in this country and even those around the world, but. My memories are what Terry and I did, whether we were playing sports or, you know, during our summer holidays as teenagers, trying to make a little bit of extra money, um, picking blueberries in the blueberry field where we lived and doing all the things we did. You know, that, that, those things are uh, my fondest memories.
4: Thank you for sharing that with us. In regards to the annual fundraiser, where did the idea, where did the dream for Terry come from?
3: Well, it came from uh, being a young kid of 18 years old, being diagnosed with cancer, and um, I, I you know, I can remember though that day in, in March 1977 so vividly, um, you know, being at the hospital with Terry and trying to figure it all out, and I can honestly say him, he was 18, I was 19, we didn't know what cancer was or how serious it was, people didn't talk about it, and during Terry's chemotherapy of 16 months, he saw others young and older going through the same thing and it impacted Terry. He, he would often say during the Marathon of Hope and the speeches that he made that cancer made him a more caring person. Um, it, he realized that it wasn't all about him and somebody maybe being in their teenage years or early 20s and all they thinking about was themselves, but it gave Terry a new look on life and felt that it was now more important to help others and uh, he realized that you know raising money for cancer research was important because not a lot of money at the time was going being directed towards cancer research
4: so many of us across this country have been touched by cancer and are thankful for the funds raised for cancer research over the years where specifically does the money go
3: yeah, it's a great question. And and it it's what Terry wanted. Um and Terry often said the same thing. We've all we'll all be touched by cancer in one way or another. Um but he wanted to impact cancer research. As I said, he found that not a lot of money was going there. So the monies that we raise through the Terry Fox runs in communities right across this country, in schools across the country and in other events that we do, um, we um for lack of a better word, I pass on a give to the Terry Fox Research Institute, who, um, you know, work with researchers across Canada, uh, some of the best researchers in the world today, um, and peer review um, different projects that they're working on, cancer research. We fund um, programs in, uh, you know, close to 15, 16 different types of cancer across this country and uh, that's where the money goes. Um, Terry wanted to know that the best the best innovative cancer research is being done and that's what's being, being done uh, with the funds that are raised every year through the Terry Fox Foundation.
4: You have said that Terry was determined to create a world without cancer. Now all mm-hmm. these years later, are you still hopeful that that's possible?
3: Very much so. Um, you know, we have an opportunity to connect with cancer researchers, and they're they're making such huge progress um, today. Um, and um, something's going to be happening here through the Marathon Hope Cancer Center Network. And, you know, we're for the first time ever in this country. Uh, researchers are going to be are sharing data, sharing information, sh- sharing things that they're doing with other researchers across the country. And that will just that will do nothing more than than move towards that uh, finding a cure one day soon. And that's what Terry wanted to, wanted to happen.
4: What can you tell us about these dear Terry messages that we're hearing so much about?
3: Yeah, you know, we've just, we just passed September 1st. And when Terry was forced to stop his Marathon of Hope in, in Thunder Bay because of the return of cancer and, uh, Terry came home, and Canadians responded in such an amazing way with so much love uh, through cards, through letters that they wrote Terry. And you can imagine that um, every one of those messages that were written probably started with the words, Dear Terry. And that's the theme of this year's Terry Fox Run, the theme of this year's uh, Terry Fox T-shirt design. Um, To pay tribute to all those who... Sent sent so much uh, compassion and love towards Terry and appreciation for what he, for the sacrifice that he made.
4: And I don't think that compassion and love for Terry Fox will ever go away. Let's talk now, though, about this year's fundraiser coming up next weekend, forty third annual. What do listeners need to know?
3: Well, I mean, you can like it's been for forty three years. You can part, you know, it is called the Terry Fox Run, but we. Have done that's what Terry wanted it to be called because that's what he did. He ran every day, and uh, so but you don't have to run to participate. You can uh, run if you want, walk, uh, rollerblade, ride a bike. Um, I've seen people out there with horses in the past, so um, just get out there and participate, uh, fundraise for cancer research. That's what Terry wanted all of us to do. And, um, you know, just go to our website, TerryFox.org, and you can register there, create your own fundraising page, and and get involved like uh, millions of people do every year.
4: And so many people right now, Fred, are going through this cancer battle themselves, either themselves or family members. What's your message to them?
3: Um... You know, Terry. You know, just in regards to Terry, Terry was running to give so many others hope. And um, just to know, anybody diagnosed with cancer or having a family member that's um, received a cancer diagnosis, you know, they should know that there is hope. Uh, with through research and through uh, so much hard work done by doctors and researchers and scientists across this country, um, you know, survival rates are so much better than they were and 20, 45 years ago when Terry was diagnosed. So um, Terry believed that anything is possible if you try. And, uh, um, you know, and, you know, through through hope, um, you know, we know that with a little bit of effort, uh, you know, people will will do great in their cancer diagnosis.
4: Fred, thank you so much for the work you continue to do in Terry's memory. We really appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you, and thank you to all those who volunteer their time to organize Terry Fox Runs and participate and uh, make a donation to cancer research. We wouldn't be going at this 43 years later, if not for so many people who commit and dedicate their time.
4: Let's leave our listeners one more time with the website address.
3: Uh, TerryFox.org is the website, and easy to find whatever you need there.
4: And the date of this year's run, we forgot to mention
3: that. Yeah, I guess we should do that. Sunday, (laughs) September 17th.
4: (laughs) All right. It'll be a week this weekend. Thank you so much, Fred.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Glenn Perkins now with the Global Day of Action to End Fossil
0: Fuels climate action and especially the green belt have been hot button issues for a while and now a number of parents in york region are rallying to draw attention to their concerns about the future health of the environment for their children pamela vega is co-founder of mothers marching
5: it's a group of local mothers and parents uh, looking to make a change. Uh, we're concerned about the future of our children, what climate change is going to do to them, what kind of world they're, they're going to um, inherit from us, and trying to inspire others um, to empower other parents and, and caretakers and pretty much anybody out there who feels kind of disempowered right now about um, making a change.
0: How are you planning to do this?
5: Uh, just getting the word out. is pretty tricky right now. Um, and speaking with other young mothers in the area, a lot of them have climate anxiety, eco-anxiety. There's worry about what's going to happen with our environment. Where will we get our food? Um, will we have enough drinking water in the future? But that at the same time that, They don't know what to do with that anxiety what can we do like it's just um climate change seems like such a massive issue and almost like something that we we can't get over so what we are hoping to do is to show people like no if we take action if we all rally if we all combine our voices together we can be loud and heard so hopefully by going out and marching getting on the streets um just getting the word out to to show people like yeah just regular people are going out on the streets and sharing our voices with each other that we want climate action now, that um, our governments will hear us and it'll be more difficult for them to ignore us.
0: These are big issues, but they're difficult issues to tackle, aren't they?
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're quite complicated.
0: With the stress of that, how do you make it work? How do you get people on board? Everything you've said is true, but when I look Mm -hmm. at it at the big picture, it's where do I even begin?
5: Yes. Yeah. And it's, I guess the fortunately, unfortunately component of it is that climate change impact practically every part of your life uh, every part of our lifestyle so if, if there's anything that you're interested in you can pick that component and then just really act on it like for me I love gardening so I've really gotten into planting with native gardens to help our pollinators and just trying to have a more sustainable garden using like rain barrels and then maybe using solar panels to help irrigate them and everything so like it, it really is you find where your passion is and then let that cause that spark and let it grow and then you'll see that you can find other things that you can keep on reaching and and adding to your knowledge and adding to your activism because really everything is activism planting a native garden is activism using rain burials is activism talking to your to your friends and family about climate change and your own fears and anxiety about it that's that's also activism so really it's just doing something getting started is the scariest step just that first step once you get started it's easy. You'll, you can find other people who are just as passionate about you, who are just scared about what's happening. And being around these types of people helps you to be more empowered as well and, and have a louder voice and find your voice and, and just take better action.
0: And as you mentioned, this is for the future, for the children. What involvement do they have?
5: For the older kids, uh, we're asking if they can write letters um, to our MPP and to our government Um, so because they need to hear from them. They need to hear from the kids themselves and what they they are fearful for and what they're looking for their government to do. And they will be welcome to join us in our rallies, in our marches. I'm bringing my own two young children to come with me, and I know a few other parents are also going to bring their children. We want to help to elevate their voices.
0: For the provincial government, the climate and uh, environment is a big story, as we know, with the Greenbelt. Is that also an issue of concern for you?
5: Oh, absolutely, yes. And it seems like that um, the Greenbelt issue is really starting to get people talking about climate change because protecting the Greenbelt is so vital to this area to protect our water sources, to protect our forests, and absolutely to protect our farmland because as our uh, population grows, We need ways to feed us and as our climate gets a little bit more chaotic, it's going to be more difficult for us to grow enough food for everybody. So we definitely need to protect the Greenbelt and the Greenbelt is absolutely um, a factor and a component of um, climate change and climate action.
0: And you have a March rally planned for September 17th. Tell me about that.
5: Yes, so we're going to meet at the southeast corner of Young and Davis, and we're going to be marching south on Young to MPP Don Gallagher Murphy's office, and we'll be uh, delivering letters to her um, written by her children, written by parents, written by caregivers on behalf of their children, and on behalf of future generations, um, asking her to deliver them to her government and for the provincial government to actually take true climate action, because right now they're not, and we really need them to do that now.
0: Pamela Vega, co founder of Mothers Marching. Thank you for joining us on the feed today.
5: Oh, my pleasure.
0: This is 1059 The Region.
1: So, the first week of school is in the books, but one York University professor is recognizing the value of public education beyond the classroom. Shaliza Backus now with that story.
6: While well, week one of the new school year is officially complete, And there are so many options for students and parents when it comes to choosing where to go to school, even before you get to post-secondary choices. Professor Sue Winton is York University's Research Chair in Policy Analysis for Democracy and the author of Unequal Benefits, Privatization and Public Education in Canada. Professor Winton says that privatization undermines the public school system and perpetuates inequalities. She joins me now. Welcome to the feed, Professor Winton. Ah, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, as I mentioned, there are so many options for education outside the traditional public school. There are private institutions, those require tuition and other fees, and many parents seem to be opting for this. Why do you think that is? Well, you're right. There are a growing number of options. I
7: think that opting for the private sector, like whole, full stop private schools, I don't think that that is a, an area that's growing tremendously. I think we've had fairly steady state for quite a long time in Ontario, I think where we see a greater proliferation of privatized practices, I would say, would be more in the public system, where there are more and more options for parents to choose within the public system. Those lead to inequalities because oftentimes those options are not available to everyone. So for example, French immersion, various specialized programs, I mean, those are more common in the secondary school level, like specialized arts programs or athletics programs, but there are some in elementary schools as well, um, international baccalaureate, those kinds of programs that are outside of the traditional public school offerings. Not in every board. I mean, it depends. It varies quite a bit, but more and more we see those options available to some students within some school board.
6: So then why do you think people are opting for basically education outside of what they're already being educated with?
7: That's a really good question. I think that it was a complicated answer, so I'll try to say a few things. You know, in my research, I think that what uh, I've found, and I've certainly you know looked b- within Ontario and beyond, I think that it's the case uh, partly that parents are anxious. I mean, we live in a broader society where we're always getting messages about shrinking middle class and not enough uh, well-paying jobs, not enough housing. So I think there's a general anxiety. I think that there is a sense, again, particularly around middle-class families, that this idea of what constitutes a good parent, our society is more and more oriented towards the individual. So that once a person's success or failures is attributed more and more to their own individual choices, as opposed to looking to like what's our responsibility as a society. So I think that's a broader message that every individual sort of is responsible for themselves. And then that carries over to parents and their families. And I think that parents are seeking what they think will be in their own child's best interest. And again, I'm a
6: parent. I had children going through public school system, So I understand. I mean, I'm not down on parents. Well, that's an interesting point that you make because I mean, I'm just over here thinking like I went through the public school system I turned out fine. And I'm sure a lot of people think the same. So what do you think has mm-hmm. changed between then and now that all of these options are seeming golden to parents?
7: Well, I think that there is a sense of, you know, look, seeking advantage within the system. Like this is the system we've got. How can I maximize the benefits for my own child, and if there is a perception that a child will get a better education, say in French immersion, or that will lead, or perhaps that will lead to more job opportunities, or perhaps offered through an arts approach, and you know my child like, likes art, then why wouldn't I look to that? So I think that there is an appeal both in terms of like what do I think my how my child is going to thrive, but also I think that there is a case sometimes of seeking advantage. We're told, you know, this society is competitive, it's hard to get into university, it's hard to get, find a job. So I think people are seeking these um, opportunities for their own child. And again, I, this is not to disparage parents, but I think that the risk is when always thinking about what's in the best interest for one's own child. Or maybe we don't even know what are the consequences for other people's children. Uh, and that's where I actually see the role of the school board and of the government. And it's their responsibility to take that collective look at the system and and our society.
6: And on that note, I mentioned off the top that you, you basically say that all of these privatization things undermine the public school system and you think that it creates inequalities. How do you think that it does that? Yeah, great question and
7: one that would require a long answer. So I'll just <laughs> touch on a couple of points. So I think, first of all, one of the things that we have to think about is like what counts as public education and while I think a lot of people may have an idea not everybody exceeds public education in the same way I think it's debated what counts as public Um, so for me I always think of like what's the ideal public school not that we've ever achieved it but what would be one that we should be striving towards and in my view that school it should be free It should be accessible, meaning people shouldn't be turned away because maybe they have uh, special needs or because they have their English language learners or French language learners or they have any sort of financial need. So they should be free. They should be accessible. Every child should have the opportunity to benefit. Like that's not to say that everyone's going to have the same outcome, but that everybody should have the same opportunity to reach their potential through public education. Um, decisions about public education should be made by the public. And furthermore, like I said, from a system level, the prioritization of collective benefits or public benefits really needs to be top of mind. So for me, that's what the public school ideal has. So then you start to think about, okay, well, what are the practices that are undermining those elements of the ideal? So some of the ones that, um, well, you've already mentioned the question, uh, what would different options which sort of falls under the umbrella often of school choice and I think what research you know within Ontario across Canada and internationally shows is that in fact not all families are able to choose and that happens for a number of reasons now sometimes they're not accessible so there may be criteria to be admitted so that would violate you know a principle of accessibility to all children Um, sometimes there's fees attached to them so similarly that would violate a principle that it's free but there's also things like fundraising and funding through other means, whether it's sponsorships or public-private partnerships. And so when those all start to violate various aspects of a sort of democratic public school ideal, so decisions may not be made in public, but the schooling is not funded fully by the government. So meaning some schools where they're able to attract more funds – or school districts where they're able to attract more funds, maybe then therefore able to offer different kinds of programs and opportunities that other children can't access. And again, this is all within the public system. So those are some ways. There are more, but those are some ways.
6: Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like we could go on about this forever. But uh, Professor Winton, if you had maybe like one key piece of advice for parents on navigating the school year for Mm -hmm. whichever part of the, the school system that they're in, what would you say?
7: Well, I think I would say that, you know, you're in good hands. You know, our public education system is very strong. And I would say, ask yourself how you can contribute to make it uh, more and more robust. Stay committed to public education. Stay interested. Ask questions of your administrator, of your trustee, participate in all of the opportunities that are available to to contribute to policy decisions and have
6: your um, voice heard. Amazing. Professor Sue Winton, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: For anyone thinking about taking a swing on the fairway, Jim Lang with Golf Ontario's Try, Learn and Play program.
8: The great people of Golf Ontario have launched a great initiative called Golf Ontario Legacy Fund. Try, Learn and Play. It's about growing the game to many different members of society in Ontario. And it really is about taking Golf Ontario to the next step in the future to talk more about it. I'm thrilled to be joined by their Chief Marketing and Development Officer, Nick Taylor. Nick, how are you? Great, Jim. Uh, how are you doing today? Great. I'm just so excited about this program. Uh, my buddies and I, uh, after all these years, we still love the game of golf. And we often wonder when we're golfing, will the youth, will the next wave of people get into the game and love it as much as we do at our age? And with this initiative, I think they will. To tell us the, the, the genesis and the legacy and the thought process behind Try, Learn, and Play. Sure. Well,
9: Try, Learn, and Play is
8: actually just
9: a component of of what we're doing under a, a vision statement of golf for all um really what drives us as an organization and is the vision within our strategic plan taking us through to the end of 2026 is this idea that golf should be available for all it should be barrier free there should be little to no reason why anybody no matter uh where they come from their age and stage of life their physical abilities um you know, their backgrounds, nothing should cause a barrier for them to try, learn, and play the game of golf. And, um, you know, within our strategic plan, under that Golf For All umbrella, um, we're focused on youth development, on growth of the game for girls and women, for adaptive golfers, for the indigenous golf community, and also through Junior Performance Pathway. And ultimately, you only identify the next
8: future stars of golf by actually bringing them to the game for the first time. And think about the year we've just had in golf with Brooke Henderson and the other Nick Taylor (laughs) and and Corey (laughs) Connors and Adam Hadwin. You could have future stars of the LPGA and PGA Tour uh, emerge from a program like this because the more people exposed to the sport, the more potential stars you can develop.
9: 100%.
8: And, you know, players
9: like Corey Connors, Matt Hughes, they represented Ontario on Team Ontario, our provincial team. Uh, Brooke was an anomaly. Brooke actually bypassed Team Ontario. She was such a generational player that she sort of you know, uh, was identified and, and catapulted straight into the national uh, sphere uh, and never looked back. But uh, absolutely, we believe that our work at Golf Ontario in um, supporting a network called the Junior Golf Pathway uh, serves to identify from among three to 4,000 young players as young as 10 years of age, um, who are who are playing on junior tours, and then they're identified by um, talent identifiers or our provincial head coach. They're invited to camps, clinics, and combines that uh, we may run uh, in conjunction with member facilities. Uh, and, and you know, they become the next wave of talent. From the next wave, perhaps they're invited to a Team Ontario uh, opportunity. And, you know, w- without mentioning any names, there's a young fellow, he's 15, 16 years of age, He's a member of Team Ontario uh, for a couple of years. He uh, attempted to qualify for the U.S. Open, and um, when they had that qualifier out of Lambton, actually played in a group with Michael Block. And for anyone who follows the game, Michael Block is the the professional that blew the doors off things in Rochester at the PGA Championship. And so um, the future is very, very bright, and we believe strongly that the next Corey, Adam, Nick, Mac, Brooke, um you know they're out there and uh, we're excited about bringing new people to the game to continue to uh
8: you know uh fill that funnel thrilled to be speaking to the chief marketing and development officer for golf ontario nick taylor and one of the things that golf ontario does it's a program called youth on course and young golfers can access a local golf course for as little as five dollars a round. and as a parent if you have kids and trying to get them into the fresh air away from screen time and playing a sport you know, ten dollars a week, two rounds a week—that's a great, to I mean, that's a great way to spend your off time in the summer.
9: Yeah, you know, first to be very clear, youth on course is something that exists across North America, and we are extraordinarily proud uh, as the biggest provincial member of uh, Golf Canada to be uh, a part of this 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 journey for young folks. And because you know, golf teaches not just you know how to play the game, but important social, mental and physical skills. Uh, it's filled with you know opportunities to learn and grow as, as a person, not just as a golfer. And so essentially what it is, is uh, a number of facilities uh, around different municipalities across the province agree to sign up uh, to be a youth on course site. And uh, there is a membership fee uh, that, that these young players have to pay up front which is just, you know, $59. But once that initial membership fee is, is paid, any of these youth on course facilities will let them go out and play for $5 a round. And that's what, when we go back full circle to what at the top of the segment we talked about making golf barrier free, we are reducing the financial barriers that might prevent a mom and dad from taking their son or daughter to the golf course for the first time, because now it's affordable.
8: I love the fact, Nick, too. When you think about youth, the decorum at a golf course, the proper dress, etiquette, manners—great skills for anyone at a young age to learn—and you learn that through golf.
9: Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm a I'm a novice golfer. <laughs> I'm a recreational golfer at best. But I had an opportunity uh, at my local course. Um, I showed up as an individual for a tee time. There were two 14-year-old boys out on the course in this particular facility has a reputation of being very welcoming to young players. They are a youth on course facility. And uh, so these two young players were set up with the the red T's, the forward T's. And I asked them, is that where they wanted to play from? And they said, yeah, uh, actually we're trying to break 80. So we need to do it from the forward T's before we move back to the whites and try to do it from there. And anyway, um, those, those two youngsters would have started the game at the age of 9 or 10 or 11 years of age. Uh, they've gotten progressively better because of opportunities to play under programs like youth on course or uh, to take lessons and, and have things like, you know, indoor simulators available to them in the wintertime at this particular facility. So it's really refreshing uh, as a parent, as someone who works in the industry, to go
8: out to these golf courses and see so many young people enjoying the game. I love also opening up to Indigenous Canadians, but something I'm very passionate about, and I have a few friends who work with this, are adaptive golfers helping people with some kind of disability to enjoy the game of golf. And I think this is, this is a huge tipping point and a change for golf and the sport in the province, in the world, by getting people with any kind of disability feeling that they can play golf as much as the next person.
9: You know, it's one of the most um, rewarding programs, I think, that we have to be involved with. And um, long before I joined the organization a year and a half ago, um, Golf Ontario created really one of the first uh, adaptive championships uh, in the country uh, five years ago. We just held our fifth annual event at Western Golf and Country Club this year. And um, it's it's grown year over year. More and more players are uh, hearing about the opportunity to go out and compete, um, there's there's a world association called the EDGA, which basically stipulates like um, the qualification to play in these kinds of events based on uh, whatever an individual's uh, physical disability may be, and so it's a very inclusive competition. Um, and you know the the five year in a row champion on the women's side, Natasha Stasiak, is a wonderful ambassador. Uh, not just to this tournament uh, and to herself and her school at Hummer College, um, but uh, to the game of golf. And um, unfortunately, the four-time men's champion, Curtis Barkley, uh, was, I think, competing on a global level uh, during this year's event and couldn't come and defend his title. But you just have to look up the names of these uh, two players in particular, and they're competing at World Games and Pair Games, and um, they're encouraging other people that have different physical disabilities to play the game, whether these people have um, had a disability their whole lives that they were born with or whether it's been the result of perhaps a, a workplace accident or a car accident or some other injury or trauma um, where they may have you know, lost a, uh, an arm or a leg or something. Um, and it's just really amazing to see the spirit uh, of competition. And, and, and the folks that are playing in our adaptive championship, they are competitors. And it's a it's a real joy to be around.
8: Get all the details at Golf Ontario's amazing website, GAO.ca. That's GAO.ca for championship schedules, provincial championships, and all the details about how they're trying to grow the game from 2023 and beyond. Nick Taylor, uh, Nick, I've been full of You and I have known each other a long time, but I'm not surprised in your role as Chief Marketing and Development Officer, that you are spearheading something like this to really open up the game for future generations. So my compliments, my friend. It was a thrill to speak to you.
9: Well, I appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, this is a team effort. As I said, I'm new to the organization, and a lot of this work has been uh, laid laid down well before I started. And it's just a, a pleasure to be a part of a, a high-performing team here at Golf Ontario and growing the game of golf for all
8: and shaping lives through golf. Awesome. Talk to you soon, Nick. Thanks very much, Jim. We appreciate
1: it. After the break, Deanie Petty reinvents herself again.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. and Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
2: I can hear your
0: voice, I can almost touch you
1: Well, that was the theme song for one of Deanie Petty's earliest TV talk shows, Sweet City Woman. Deanie has had a remarkable career so far. Co-anchor, City Pulse News at Six with Gord Martineau, founding and longtime host of City Line. She eventually moved from City TV to Baton Broadcasting, where the hour-long, wildly successful Deanie Petty show was born and raised. With that, she firmly established herself as the best of the best in Canadian television. But here's what really stands out for me when it comes to Deanie Petty, the broadcaster. 1967, CKEY radio, pink jumpsuit, Hughes 300 helicopter. Deanie Petty, the first female traffic reporter to pilot her own chopper. Deanie, the divine, the daring, the delectable, the darling. She joins us now on the feed. You know, I could have added diva, but you are so not a diva, Deanie Petty. And welcome to the show. Thank you, and Romar. <laughs> we've been together, you and I, for many, many years, at working in different ways uh, in television and in radio. But we've always had this connection, and I feel very connected to you today. Looking forward to your one-woman show coming up on September the 15th here in Toronto. Tell me a little bit about the show and why you are presenting it. I think it's part two, and do you have to be brave to do something like that?
10: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I I decided to do a one-woman show, and I did 34 or 5 performances of my first one, which I originally called The Moth, The Flame, and The Lemming. And people who were artistic got it as a moth to a flame, and the how we're drawn to the stage, a lot of the public looked at me and turned their head sideways and went, what? So (laughs) I called it a broad view. And I knew that the title was important. And I knew I wanted to do a second show. So somehow, and I don't remember how, I came up with the title, Men and Other Furry Creatures, which makes most people laugh or smile. So I knew I had the right title. So here I am many years later saying, you know what? I Somebody offered me the opportunity, and I actually had four shows booked before COVID hit with theaters in Toronto, and then everything was canceled. Then this came up, and I'm like, I'm in.
1: You got to take it. Friday, September the 15th yep. at the St. Lawrence Center for the Arts. So, how do you prepare for something like this? Are you responsible for every aspect of this one woman show,
10: Deanie? Yeah, it's just me, babe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting, it's actually easier. I mean, in, if you're doing a play, the lines are written, it's very structured. If you're doing a one-woman show, and you know you're going to talk about, I, I talk about my flying days, because I was 23 when I got that job, and I walked into the heliport. And every helicopter had a guy, two men in it, one who did the flying, one who did the reporting, except at CKY where Bob Carter did both. And I walk in at 23, I weighed 115 pounds soaking wet, and I went, hi, I'm Deanie, I'm going to do both. And the guys are like, sure, honey, give it your best job. <laughs> and I found out years later they had a pool on, you know, how long do you think she's going to allow, oh, she's not going to make it, she's... So I ran into, because I am 70 freaking eight years of age, I, I, at that time the women's movement didn't exist in this country. So I ran into that. I didn't not only run into the glass ceiling, there was a glass wall attached firmly in front of me. <laughs> but, it, you know, you just keep going. And uh, men were a big part of the issues that I had.
1: Well, and, and here's what uh, I find interesting. You, you obviously had your helicopter's pilot's license, but you didn't stop being a woman while you were doing this. You, you chose to wear a pink jumpsuit, which I think just stands all by itself as a big message.
10: Actually, that credit goes to Harvey Clark, because there was a helicopter war going on in Toronto, and Harvey Clark, bless you, the PR guy for CKY EY Radio walked into a meeting and said, I know how we're going to win this helicopter war. We're going to find a girl and we're going to put her up in a pink helicopter and she's (laughs) going to wear pink and drive a pink car and she's going to fly the machine and do the reports, go find the girl. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you have a problem dealing with all of that? You know, that's, that's pretty sexist in a way, but you obviously saw that there was merit in it
10: are you kidding? They paid for all my training. <laughs> I hold a commercial helicopter license today. I have 5,000 hours flying time. A commercial helicopter license today is about $60,000. They paid for my training. They paid me a salary. I got to fly a helicopter. They gave me, I got a, did a deal with Jeep and I drove a pink Wagoneer, but it was free. So I'm like, <laughs> I am in. The it's- only problem was my husband at the time, although men say they want to be married to a very successful woman that, you know, does well, it's very difficult for men to play second banana sometimes. And sometimes, as it was with husband number two, it was impossible. He, he just couldn't deal with it.
1: He kind of slipped on the banana peel.
10: Boy, did he ever slip <laughs> on the banana peel. We had a couple. I'm on a, I'm on a live phone-in show with a male host. And I'm 24, and didn't I just recognize the third caller's voice as my husband? No. Who would like to be married to you? And the male host is all over this. Yeah, do you even have time to cook? But you would have been proud of me, Ann. I am Put on my dancing shoes, smiled at the camera, and said, I'm really very lucky. My husband is very successful, and he's very proud of what I do. The guy wouldn't get rid of the collar. It was the longest three minutes of my life.
1: How long did your marriage last after that?
10: Uh, It didn't last long because there was another uh, situation in which he humiliated me publicly. He just, he couldn't deal with it. It could be because he was an only child. I, I, I don't know what the reason was, but his male ego could not, and that was the end of marriage number two.
1: Let's continue to talk about you behind the controls of this Hughes 300 uh, helicopter. How, what was it like reporting? You know, you have to be focused, but also flying this incredible machine. Same time.
10: When I mastered it and finally relaxed, and I always say it's like driving your car. When you first learn to drive a car, you're like, oh my God, I got, oh my God, I got to do oh you get, get. And then finally the car becomes an extension of your arms. And when I got to that point, and that probably took close to a thousand hours to relax to the point where I knew what I was doing with the traffic reports, and she became an extension of my arms, and then I was taken into the world of flight. And it's a world that only pilots can truly understand, and it was one of the best things that ever happened.
1: Probably another one of the best things that ever happened to you, City TV. And and so many milestones and incredible accomplishments with City TV. And I loved watching you. Oh, and City Pulse News at Six with Gord Martineau, the two of you, each of you delivering the way you should in a proper and understandable manner. But there was a certain edge about each of you that, that just brought this sparkle to the newscast. And I, I will always appreciate what you and Gord did.
10: Gord Martineau is one of the best newsreaders ever, but you have to remember I started with a complete total one hundred percent failure. My first <laughs> live interview was with Patrick McNee, the great English actor oh, yeah. who played who was in the original Avengers series. I go into the studio, I've got all the questions memorized, as I'm going in I think I'm really nervous. Oh, you're supposed to be nervous, it's live T V Oh, Camera <laughs> goes on, red light. I asked him my first question, and I froze and startled deer in headlights, frozen. Patrick is a very nice man. He recognized the look, and mm-hmm. when he answered my first and only question, he tapped me on the knee and said, I know, you want to know about the play I'm in? Oh. Yeah, tell me about the play you're in. The whole freaking interview. I know, now you want to know about my family? Yeah. Tell me about your family. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, I was so bad. Everything I tried at first, I was good at flying. It turned out I was a natural. I mean, you know, where in high school do you get a, a guidance counselor who gives you a test and go, oh, my God, you're a natural helicopter pilot. But I was a natural. But when I was a pub, I became a very good public speaker. But my first speech was so, my first five were so bad. But I have what you have and what successful people have. I have resilience. Every time I get knocked down, I lie in my face for as long as it takes, but I always get up. And I don't know if you can teach resilience because it's such a necessary ingredient to living life. Because everybody fails, as you well know. But the, the ability to get up and go ahead, that's a
1: huge, huge blessing. Absolutely. And did it take resilience to be the first host of city line? Did it take guts? Were you awful at the beginning of this? I can't believe if you say yes.
10: I was really bad that first interview I froze. then <laughs> I got I, it's like speaking. My first five speeches, ten weren't very good. I've given a hundred speeches. I now know what I'm doing. My first performance for the one woman show, but by performance 15, 20, I, I hear where the audience is laughing. I can feel them. So self-confidence is number of times through. First time you hit a golf ball, first time you fly a helicopter. First time you do anything, you're not very good. But by the one hundredth time, mm-hmm. you're pretty damn good. And if you're not, you're in the wrong job.
1: You know, it's interesting. On Monday, uh, Monday the eleventh of September, you are part of a of a milestone show f- for City Line. What's that going to be like for you? And what is the milestone that you'll be celebrating with City Line on Monday?
10: <laughs> it's it's forty years since City Line hit air. Wow, and it was. It for me it's fascinating, just to go back to I some of the best days of my life were City TV, and I still, I was at a party about a week ago with uh, not a week ago, about four weeks ago, celebrating Jojo Chinto's birthday, <laughs> who I've stayed friends with forever. Steve Hurlbut, who's one of my dear friends, and Keith Wilson, who was head of the, our chief cameraman. You know these people; I they're do. still in my life. <laughs> Heather Ryle, who was my senior producer at city and then went to CTV. and randy who was my director who went with me we're still really close friends it well, it, it's wonderful to go back to those days they were good days and then of course i had my baby on tv and that was another story jesus uh, and, what was i thinking
1: and that was something that we did not see before you know and and nicholas how old is he now
10: uh nicholas is 42 years old oh my goodness
1: wow yeah. Wow. So let's now fast forward from Monday, where you will be making a special appearance on City Line. I know everyone will tune in to Friday the 15th. I want to go back to that amazing Men and Other Furry Creatures Part 2, one-woman show, Deanie Petty. What are people going to take away from this show?
10: It's funny, I keep getting asked questions. Some man I know is a brilliant actor. Stopped me in the street and said, will it be a comedy? And I said, well, I hope you'll get a couple laughs out of it. Well, will you be reading it? I said, no, it's a one woman show. So my goal is that you will have, you will be entertained. You'll walk away and you will have been happy that you were there. You will have enjoyed the experience. If that isn't true, then I failed, but I believe that's what you will, you will find because i My goodness, I've had an unusual life. I'm on my second set of nine lives. Wow. And I discovered after you use your first nine set, you automatically get a second. (laughs) I've had 10 close calls, which means the options facing me were I would live or I wouldn't. And I escaped every single time unscathed. And my 11th is a certain death experience, which is quite different. It's Obviously, it's when you know you're going to die. This is it. And obviously, that didn't happen. For details, show up on September (laughs) 15th, St. Lawrence Center for the Performing Arts at 8 o'clock. Beautiful.
1: I'm sold. That's fantastic. How do people get tickets?
10: Uh, You can go online to the St. Lawrence Center for the Performing Arts. Excellent. What's
1: your best piece of advice? You embrace growing older. I'm right there with you, Dini. How is it that you've managed to stay sane, stay healthy, stay happy, stay vibrant, and you still have that great sense of humor? How does that happen?
10: Boy, there's—you know—you're always good at asking big questions, Dan Romer. <laughs> um, I genetics is a big part of it. I have excellent genetics. I also have resilience. And my secret, I've often said in speeches, if I had a magic wand, and I could wave it over the audience, I would give you a sense of humor. And in that would be embedded the ability to laugh at yourself. Because the worst things get in life, and when they get really bad, like my friend Barb Turnbull, who was shot at 18 and left a quadriplegic, and who became a writer for the star and has more awards for everything. Your, your humor, you get a very black sense of humor. Monty Python and I are kindred spirits.
1: I love it. I love it. You, you leave me speechless. And believe me, that's rare, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. that I do know. <laughs> Deanie Petty, Men and Other Furry Creatures, Friday, September the 15th at the St. Lawrence Center for the Arts. You've got to go to it. Deanie, thank you so much. What a pleasure.
10: From one fabulous broad to another, Ann Romer, thank you.
1: If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.